I have a feeling that we're not in Kansas anymore. This line, as you probably know, was spoken by Dorothy to her dog, Toto, as they suddenly ended up in the magical land of Oz. Uh, If you don't know the movie I'm referencing, I'm referencing The Wizard of Oz. Uh, It came out in 1939, and it is, by all accounts, a classic. Uh, But in case you're unaware or unfamiliar with the storyline, or it's a little fuzzy, or it's been a long time since you've you've watched that VHS, um, let me refresh the storyline for you a bit. Dorothy is an orphaned girl who lives with her aunt and uncle on a farm in Kansas. Uh, It's about as exciting as it sounds. Um, There's not much to her day in and day out life. That's no knock on Kansas, Birdie, wherever you're at, all right? She's out there there somewhere. Her life is kind of day in, day out. You know, maybe the most exciting thing that she does with her day is, you know, wait for the milkman to come and, and make his daily rounds, you know, exciting stuff. Uh, But one day, like all good teenagers, she gets a surge of defiance, right? And she decides that she's going to run away from her aunt and uncle. Uh, But this defiance is short-lived, as it usually is, uh, due to a casual visit to the town's fortune teller. You know, always a good means to bring you back home. And so she changes her mind. She has a change of heart, realizes, you know, I really should live with my aunt and uncle. And, but as she is on her way back home, a tornado begins to sweep through the town. And she just makes it back inside her home when debris starts to fly everywhere. And all of a sudden, she's, you know, she's trying to make it down to the basement for shelter with her family. But as she's on her way there, a window frame comes off the wall and knocks her unconscious. And her house is literally swept up into another world. Now, when she awakes... She's disillusioned a bit. She looks around, and everything is all bright and vivid and Oz. And at this point in the movie, the filmmakers actually change the movie to be in color from black and white, so that even the viewers, like us watching the movie, are shocked by this vividness of Oz. She looks around and sees all these curious creatures running about, and all these exotic plants, and castles off in the distance. And she can't help but say to her dog, Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. All of a sudden, this girl from the world of black and white, this girl from Kansas, mundane and ordinary, finds herself in a land that is vivid and full of excitement. If we're honest, and we should be because we're in church right now, If we're honest, a lot of times our Christian lives feel a little more like Kansas than like Oz. You know, most of us, we've been Christians a while. You know, a year, a decade, a few decades, however long. We're familiar with the routine. We can mingle in the church lobby with the best of them. You know, we have our weekly routine set with church and ethos, and, you know, we have that on repeat. And now I'm not dogging routine. If you, if you know me, you know I love routine, and I love to have my days end with me being in a dream within a dream by 9.30 p.m., all right? That is, that is ideal to me. But what I am getting at is that sometimes our spiritual lives feel like they're on autopilot. We feel like we're just kind of going through the motions, and then when we open up the scriptures and read about David and Moses and Peter and Paul and the intimacy they had with the Lord, how they knew God, that feels like another world to us. 
That feels like Oz when we're stuck in Kansas. So what do we do when we find our Christianity on cruise control? When our spirituality is on autopilot? What do we do when we find ourselves in Kansas? If you have your Bible, meet me in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Again, that is 2 Timothy chapter 1. As both of our elders, Ben, have preached the past few weeks, Ben Mangrich and Ben Wilson, uh, they introduced us to the letter of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is Paul's kind of parting wisdom to his protege, Timothy. Uh, Timothy has gone on a few missionary journeys with Paul. He's done lots of ministry. Now, Timothy is a pastor in Ephesus doing his own thing. He's probably in his 30s or 40s. And Paul is nearing the end of his life. And so this is his kind of last bit of wisdom about ministry, his last bit of advice about life itself for his younger son in the faith, Timothy. And as Ben Mangridge preached last week, he walked us through the text where he exhorts Timothy to fan into flame the gift that he's been given, to let his faithfulness spread and to not grow weary, because we, he hasn't been given a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. And Ben talked about what that means for us in this season without a pastor, about us stepping into community, stepping up to serve and stepping out on mission. So on that note, let us step up and step in to our text today. Let's read in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. All right. As any Sunday school Bible teacher worth their salt will point out, this passage begins with the word, therefore. All right, you know, I'm not going to make too big of a deal out of that, but I'm just going to point out that Paul's argument is kind of gaining steam here. Remember, he's exhorted Timothy to fan into flame the gift that was given to him. He's been given the spirit of love and of power and of self-control. Therefore, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Now, this is an odd command. Do not be ashamed. We should think about, I mean, why, what makes this necessary for Paul to say this? Why does Timothy need to hear this? Uh, well, probably a few reasons. Paul mentions his imprisonment here, and Paul is writing this letter from prison. Um, and no matter your profession, when your mentor for whatever trade you're in is in prison, that doesn't necessarily reflect well on you. Like, oh, who'd you learn business from? Oh, I learned it from Bill. Oh, like, isn't Bill in prison for financial fraud? Like, oh, well, yeah, you know. So, I mean, like, when your mentor in something is in prison, that doesn't necessarily bode the best for you, okay? Another reason Timothy might be tempted to be ashamed of the Lord's testimony is that, remember, at this time, there's kind of this social stigma with being a Christian, and uh, not so much like it is today, but more so in terms of power and weakness, right? So people would think like, oh, you're a Christian. Um, like, isn't like the man you worship, wasn't he crucified as a criminal on a Roman cross? Like, oh, you're a Christian, you're a Christian. Aren't all your major leaders and preachers like in prison or haven't they been killed for what they're preaching? And Paul is telling this to Timothy, a 30-something-year-old pastor, 
that no matter your age, no matter your profession, there's always that temptation to avoid public embarrassment for Christ and the gospel. It doesn't matter how long you've been walking with our Lord. That temptation lingers. And Paul wants Timothy to not be ashamed, either of the Lord's testimony about the gospel or of his imprisonment, because he's in prison for proclaiming Christ crucified. But he changes it from a negative command to a positive command. He says, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Um, I think the three-word phrase there that's really important is the phrase, for the gospel. The kind of suffering Paul is talking about here is not the kind of suffering that a lot of us are all too familiar with, with losing loved ones or having chronic ailments or besetting sins. That's not the kind of suffering Paul's talking about here. Paul is talking about suffering for the gospel, suffering that comes as a result of faithfulness to Christ, of proclaiming him and of being faithful to him. It's suffering for the gospel. Oops, sorry. And that phrase, share in suffering, it takes three words to bring out what is one word in the original language, share in suffering. It is a verb, a command that is impossible to obey by yourself. It is a verb that implies at least two people. So you could bring this out, Paul saying to Timothy, share in suffering with me, It could be share in suffering with us, meaning it is impossible for you to be this lone ranger obeying this verse by yourself. That's not what God has called you to. He has called us, he has called us, his church, to share in suffering for the gospel together. One of us doesn't get the monopoly on this, not one of us gets to claim this. This is all of us suffering together for the gospel by the power of of God. And hopefully that word power in the text brings your eye up back to verse 7, right? When he's talking about the spirit that Timothy's been given, not of fear, but of power, of love, of self-control. That no matter how many WWJD bracelets you got or Awana t-shirts you rep, it is God's spirit that enables you to share in this suffering. If you haven't seen it yet, Um, I highly recommend going out and seeing The Incredibles 2. It's in theaters everywhere right now. Um, If you don't have plans this afternoon and you haven't seen it, you do now. I promise you'll be edified. Selah. Go see it. You'll be better for it. Um, I'm not going to spoil any bit of the plot. I'm not going to give away the ending or anything like that. But what I do want to do is reflect for a bit on the story, the family that The Incredibles movies focus on. The movie focuses on the family of Bob and Helen Parr, Uh, but you probably know them as Mr. Incredible and Elastigirl. Uh, Back in their day, Mr. Incredible and Elastigirl were kind of the bee's knees, right? You would wake up in the morning and you would see Mr. Incredible's face on the front page of the paper because of this crime he just stopped. You'd be walking down the city streets and you would see Elastigirl's face on the bus, I mean, Elastigirl and Mr. Incredible were the real deal. Stopping crime, all, all, all of that. Uh, until one day, um, you know, and at the height of their career, 
Superheroes are made illegal, which, big mistake. Politicians blew it there. They outlaw superheroes. And this forces Bob and Helen, Mr. Incredible and Elastigirl, to kind of settle down. They get married. They have three kids. And all these years later, with these special, unique powers and superheroes still being illegal, Bob and Helen have very different approaches to this law. Uh, Bob, you will find him out at night listening to police scanners, you know, listening for crime, and he's ready to pounce on the unsuspecting criminal, beat the police there, save the day, but then just kind of get out before the cameras get there. But Helen, on the other hand, is waiting at home, ready to give him a talking to. When he comes back, you know, saying, honey, you know, we're not, we're not allowed to do this anymore. We should avoid this. You know, Helen is all about laying low, blending in. She doesn't want to, you know, live into kind of what makes her unique from the world. She is about, you know, let's raise a family. Let's settle down. Let's not be in the public's eye. And what this boils down to is that Bob and Helen have very different opinions about how they should steward what makes them unique from the world, how they should live out their powers. And as a Christian, a lot of times it's easy to think like Helen Parr. It's easy to think lay low and blend in with the world and avoid what makes us unique. Faithfulness is not avoiding the world's opposition, but enduring it. Faithfulness is not avoiding the world's opposition, but enduring it. That this call on our lives to share in suffering is a real command. And I know it's difficult. I know there are social stigmas out there. But at the end of the day, it is unfaithful for us to tiptoe around certain conversations with people forever. As uncomfortable as it might be with that coworker or that neighbor, we can't tiptoe forever. But we've been given this charge to share in suffering for faithfulness together as the church. Faithfulness is not avoiding the world's opposition, but enduring it. Uh, Let's return to our text. Verses 9 and 10, read with me. Who, referring back to God, God saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now, I love these verses. It's almost like Paul can't help himself. Uh, A lot of times when you read Paul and he mentions the phrase, the gospel or God, he kind of gets off on these tangents. He's like, oh, by the way, God saved you from this, and he did this in your life, that this reads kind of like classic Paul. And Paul says that God has saved us and called us to a holy calling. But this holy calling is not just for Paul and for Timothy. It's for you, Brady. It's for you, Matt Wright. It's for you, Tommy Doles. This holy calling is for us as Christians. But what is this holy calling? As First Peter says, 
We've been saved to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 2 Corinthians 5 says we have been made ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us and reconciling the world to himself. Not counting our trespasses against us. If you're a Christian, no matter your vocation or season in life, it is your holy calling to make much of Jesus. This is your job description. It's to make him look good. Proclaim his excellencies with your word, with your behavior, with your life. Your holy calling is to make much of him. And this is a holy calling, a salvation we've been brought into. Read with me, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This holy calling is not something God thought about after you were born, saying, oh, you know, now that, you know, now that young Bill's in the world, you know, you know I, should, I should put this call on his life. No, the Bible does not let you think that. The Bible says before the ages began, before the foundation of the world, God has set his love and his choice on you, and he knows everything he has called you to. Um, J.I. Packer says it like this. This is that one slide, Moses. He says, there is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me or quench his determination to bless me. Hopefully that's freeing to us. Like, hopefully that's something we can kind of get down in our hearts, that God's love for us at every point is based on prior knowledge of the worst about us. The Bible says it that when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we had nothing good in our hands to bring, Christ went to the cross. Hopefully that's freeing to us. This is something that has been set for us since before the foundation of the world. Read with me again. Verse 10, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. So now this holy calling, this eternal calling from before the world began, before the ages began, has now been manifested in Christ Jesus. Jesus has put flesh on your calling. Who abolished death. Who abolished death. Now, that word for abolished can be translated one of two ways. Uh, To abolish, like it is here or to make something powerless. Um, I don't think I'm the biggest fan of the abolish choice here because of the image it kind of brings to our mind. Um, maybe I'm the only one, but when I hear the word abolish, uh, I think of stuff being like blown up to smithereens, just like pff, abolished, you know? But made powerless, that, that's, that's an attractive translation. Jesus has abolished death. And another reason I'm not a fan of this is because If Jesus has destroyed death, then what do you tell the people who are at funerals? Even now, right now, somewhere in the world, a funeral is going on. Death still has power. It still has life. Has Jesus Christ, by virtue of his resurrection, defeated death? Yes. Has he destroyed it? Not yet. There's a difference between defeating something and destroying it. Though Jesus is Lord over death, he will destroy death on the last day. 
just as there's a difference between abolishing something and making it powerless. So Jesus has made death powerless over us. It doesn't get the last word. Jesus does. Jesus has the claim on our lives. He's Lord over it. He has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Uh, Frankly, this means that we know more about eternal life on this side of Jesus' life than people did before Jesus. You read the Old Testament, they have hope that they'll be with God, but there's no real kind of, you know, flesh and blood to that picture. They have this hope, they have this faith, but it's not until after Jesus where we can say, God is making heaven and earth new. On the morning Jesus was resurrected, that means I too will be resurrected as he was, living on the renewed earth with him forever. Jesus has abolished death. He has made it powerless and he has brought to light life and immortality. As Kyle mentioned, um, I am engaged to be married right now. Uh, Two weeks from this moment, I will have just landed in Florida for a 10-day honeymoon. Uh, So Lord, haste the day when my honeymoon shall be sight. Um, and uh, being engaged, I've learned, I've learned a few things throughout this, throughout this time, just a few. Uh, one of them is that wedding planning is a really special and unique thing that I only want to do once in my life, right? You know, I, I have yet to, like, be in the midst of all this planning and then just, you know, had this moment to myself of being like, man, I really hope I get to do this, you know, again in my life sometime. Um, You know, as fun as it is to think about napkin placement, you know, and the angle of the sun when we're pronounced man and wife, you know, as fun as as it is to think about those things, um, I I am ready to be married. I am ready to have Anno walk down the aisle to me. Like, I am ready for that day. Um, Believe it or not, uh, throughout this time of engagement and wedding planning, Anno and I haven't seen eye to eye on everything, Um, which is okay because I hear once you get married, that goes away. Um, (laughs) At least that's what Ben and Rachel Wilson told us in premarital. So anyway, I'm banking on that. It's a joke in case you didn't, don't think I'm serious there. You know, like, like engagement and wedding planning, like it surface things that are hard. You know, things that you don't think will be big deals become big deals. You know, all these things. And as fun as it is thinking about what dessert to have and what colors we're going to pick, In all of it, what sustains Anno and I is the fact that we actually get to get married at the end of this thing, right? That this is not just pointless, mindless labor of looking through different fabrics or tasting cake. Like, this is something where we actually get to get married at the end. Christian, God's gospel is the only story worth suffering for. Because it's the only story where we get the wedding at the end. These commands to share in suffering and to not be ashamed, they will remain in the abstract. They will seem far from you. You won't understand it if you forget what story you're caught up in. If you forget the reality of all that the gospel says about you and the world and what you are headed towards, these commands will remain in the abstract. And Paul, in verses 9 and 10, is not just going off on a tangent. He's giving Timothy the why as to why he should obey the commands in verse 8. Why should you not be ashamed? 
Why should you share in suffering? Because look at what your God has done. Look at who he is. Look at what he's called you to. And notice, Paul even mentions that, you know, before the ages began, we've had this grace on us. And Jesus has brought immortality, eternity, future to light. God has encompassed us in a timeline of grace. All of it is ours, past, present, future. God has nothing but favor on us in Christ Jesus and what he's calling us to. God's gospel is the only story worth suffering for. Let's return to our text one last time. In verse 11. For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So in verse 11, we kind of get Paul's you know, ministerial description. He's a preacher, he's an apostle, he's a teacher. And then he links that with his present experience. He says, this is why I'm suffering as I do because of my faithfulness to the gospel. Just as for us, anytime we're faithful to obey Christ out in an unbelieving world, we seek to push back what's dark, that's going to be met by opposition. So just as Paul can say, you know, yeah, I'm a preacher, I'm an apostle, I'm a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. In a real sense, kind of us as Christians, we should say, yeah, I'm a Christian, which is why I suffer as I do, which is why so-and-so thinks this, or, you know, whatever. And then, and then he moves on and says, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Um, I don't know if they still make movies like this. Um, but I saw, I think it was like Spy Kids or Spy Kids 2 when I was young. One of those like terrible but awesome movies when you're a kid. Um, and the movie was half in 2D and half in 3D that they kind of inter- interspersed the two. And a signal would come up on the screen and you would have to put on your 3D glasses, which was great because it limited the headache you got from the 3D to be only half the movie instead of the whole thing. Um, so anyway, this signal would come up during the movie, and you, know, you would put your 3D glasses on, and everything would pop and be vivid, and then you would take it off and it would go back to 2D. This verse, if, the, if our text was one of those movies, this is the point where we put on the 3D glasses. This is the point where it pops. And I'm, I'm going to restrain some nerddom right now, but Paul changes verb tense here to use a verb tense that he hasn't used before. In this text and in this book, he has yet to use this tense, and all of a sudden he's saying, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Then at the core of it, the reason why Paul isn't ashamed is because he knows who his God is. He knows who his God is and what his character is like. He knows what his God has done for him. And he knows in whom he has believed and he is convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul is not ashamed. The exact same thing he commanded Timothy to not be in verse 8. Paul is modeling for here what he wants Timothy to do. Paul is modeling here what he would want for us. To know in whom we have believed. 
to know our God, to be acquainted with him, and to have that be the ground of our boldness, to have that be the ground of why we are not ashamed. And he says that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul knows that he is a cracked pot. He knows he is a weak vessel. But he knows who his God is. He knows what his God has entrusted him with, this sound teaching, this way to lead the church. And that Christ is able to guard that and see that through to the end. Paul is freed up because it's not about him. It's about his God and whom he has believed. If you are a savvy sermon listener, you probably have a few questions in your head about Kansas and Oz and Toto. At the beginning of my sermon, I mentioned how a lot of times we feel like our Christian lives are being lived in this black and white, like we're in Kansas, and we feel like other people get to be in Oz. Um, Well, there's something else I want to tell you about Oz. Um, When Dorothy's there, she soon finds out from, I think it's it's like the, the Witch of the North or something, one of the good ones in the pink dress. She finds out from this uh, witch that she is, if she has any shot of returning back home, and remember Dorothy's had that change of heart, she wants to go back and live with her aunt and uncle again. If she has any shot of wanting to go back home, she has to go see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Oz. I'm going to restrain singing there, if you know the movie. So Dorothy sets off, you know, to go see the wizard. She goes off down the yellow brick road, and as she's passing along a field, she notices a scarecrow. And she begins talking with the scarecrow. I mean, the scarecrow's friendly. And as she gets to know the scarecrow, the scarecrow confides in her that all he wants is a brain, which is not a bad wish, right? He's all straw on the inside, and all he wants more than anything is to have a real human brain. And Dorothy now is like, well, I'm off to go see the Wizard of Oz, He's powerful enough to bring me back home. Surely he can give you a brain. And, you know, the scarecrow's like, well, I have nothing to lose except, you know, staying in this field forever, so sure. So now the two of them are off down the yellow brick road together, the scarecrow and Dorothy. They go through this forest, and who do they meet next but a tin man. You know, Dorothy is kind. She puts oil on his shoulder and on his mouth so he can move around and talk again. And... As it turns out, the tin man, all he really wants in life is to have a real human heart. You know, he's hollow on the inside. He's been stuck in this forest forever. All he wants is he wants to live life to the full, and he wants to have a human heart. Well, now, there's not just one evangelist, but there's two. There's Dorothy and the scarecrow to assure him, well, if you want a human heart, you should go see the wizard. The wizard can do it. You know, he's bringing Dorothy back home. He's giving the scarecrow guy a brain. He can give you a heart. So, the tin man joins them, and now the three of them are off to go see the wizard, all three of these people. And, well, you know the story. They meet one more character. They meet the cowardly lion. Uh, he's, a real, he's a real scaredy cat, you know? That was my one dad joke that I was allowed in the sermon right there. Thanks, John. They meet this cowardly lion, and, you know, he's all timid, and he's hiding around a lot, and You know, I mean, he kind of sneaks up on him, but, you know, he's scared at the same time. He's been by himself for a while. He just wants to be around people. And what he wants more than anything is courage, right, to, you know, live into his lion nature. He wants courage. 
And now there's not just two evangelists. There's a cloud of witnesses telling him about the wizard, right? I mean, you know, we get the scarecrow saying, yeah, well, he's going to give me a brain. Surely he could give you courage. You got the tin man, you know, without the heart saying, oh, well, the wizard, he's going to give me a heart. So, I mean, he can give you courage. And then the four of them are, are off to go see the wizard. And I'm assuming you know the rest of the story. But what I want to point out in each one of those instances with the scarecrow, with the tin man, and with the lion, it was something about the wizard that compelled them to go. It was something about the wizard's power, the wizard's ability, the wizard's sufficiency that propelled them to go to the Emerald City. When we find ourselves in Kansas, when we find ourselves in the black and white of the day-to-day, feeling like we are missing out on something, the answer doesn't come by looking at ourselves. It comes from our God. It is God's sufficiency that propels us in faithfulness to Him. It is God's sufficiency that propels us in faithfulness to Him. A.W. Tozer once said that the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. The most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. Often we forget that we are made in His image. We are in His world. We are in His story, made for His purpose and His glory. That this life is not about us, And that's freeing. When we find ourselves in ruts or when we find ourselves in dry seasons, only God, only the Lord Jesus is big enough and compassionate enough and powerful enough to meet you. The answer to our spiritual sluggishness is not seven steps to zeal by Friday. The answer is behold your God. Behold God. Your God. One of the quickest ways to rob yourself of joy in the Christian life is to look and think it only about yourself. To base your joy on your performance for God. We will become trapped in a merry-go-round of our own performance if it's about us. That God only loves us as much, you know, as well as we're doing. You know, you ask someone, you know, after a week-long spiritual retreat, you know, like, how does God feel about you? And they'll say, man, God loves me. God loves me. He is so for me. Ask someone in just, just a dry, you know, ordinary Tuesday, how does God feel about you? Uh, well, I mean, he's, he loves me, but, you know, he's probably upset about this, and he's really impatient with me here, and, That so often we base what God feels about us based off how we feel about ourselves. Like if we feel like everything's aligned in here and good in here, God must be satisfied with me. Christian, it is not about you. It is about your God. It is about his story, what he's doing. Does he care intimately about you? Yes. Does he see you? Yes. No matter your season. No matter what you're in, your love, his love for you is not as fickle as our love for him. He sees you. 
He knows you. His love is unchanging. It is as steady yesterday as it is today and as it will be forever. Church, I have news for you. We're not in Kansas anymore. God has brought you into a story that is the greatest story and the most true story that will ever be told. You're a part of it. It's about him, and we are freed up to make much of him. And it is his sufficiency that propels us in faithfulness to him. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the faithful and good God that you are. We thank you that your love for us is unchanging. God, that you see us and that you know us better than we know ourselves. God, I pray that now that we would be free to respond to you in worship, that we wouldn't be mindful of those around us, but God, we would sing to you. God, free us from a slavery to self. Would we rejoice in you and lift you high? In Christ's name, amen.